With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. Love aliens. We're rolling. We're in. Yay. Welcome back. Ra, ra, Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. <laughs> there was a cat who really was gone. Those are the real words. <laughs> Did you watch that today when I sent it to you? No, because I was trying to do my stupid research. <laughs> Guys, if you've never watched the original music video for that song by Boney M, you got to. I think I watched it like a year ago. Do you remember it? When it first came into our lives. No, should I just No, watch it? I mean, it's not going to be interesting to anyone else, so we can talk about it later, okay, but they should watch it. Cool. I'm excited. I am so ready to purge my brain. <laughs> Welcome to Mystery Team Inc., the podcast where some of us drive ourselves insane trying to make a coherent narrative out of nonsense. I'm Maggie. And I'm Kayla. And we're MK. Oh, ultra. ultra. Coincidence? <laughs> um, just wait till you hear what my fucking mystery is and you I'm might so think excited. that it is an, a coincidence. That it a is a coink. A coink a doink? A coink a doink? <laughs> Uh, should we do this? I, I don't even yeah. have my notes up. <laughs> oh. What? Just as usual, I forgot to say, listener discretion is advised. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, yeah, now go ahead. Is. So I have a phone date with a spine surgeon who lives five blocks away from me tonight. Oh my God, to do like a spine consultation? <laughs> yeah, I was like, apparently I can't sit right. And he was like, we'll talk about it. <laughs> wow, I can't believe this, the day in May of 2020 during the pandemic that you met your soulmate. I know. And I was only, I, I met him on Tinder and I only went on Tinder because my Twitter crush <laughs> posted <laughs> that he was on Tinder. <laughs> Okay, I have more questions now. Yeah. Why is he on Tinder? My Twitter crush? No, your spine surgeon. Unknown. Spiny, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> My new nickname for him. I don't know why he's on Tinder. I don't know if it's because he just isn't aware of the better ones. Better is relative, but you know. <laughs> right. I don't know. Interesting. All right. Well, I guess the mystery will be revealed. What time is your date? I said, I'll call you when we're done. I don't know when it'll be. <laughs> this is good. It's good for you to set this precedent with men that you're dating. Do you have any other top of show business? 
No, I just wanted to tell you that fun story. I do have, we should crack our, crack our beers. I was just, that, that was what I was going to say, is if we finish the business, it's time to crack, quack the beers. And I, I want to cheers this one to Spiny. <laughs> to Spiny. <laughs> and next week when he's already stopped responding to me, <laughs> I'll let everyone know. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Is it your turn to go first? I believe it is my turn to go first. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Today, I am doing. I don't well, like okay, the tone of your voice. I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Today, I am doing The Mysterious Disappearance of Agatha Christie. <gasps> oh, <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm going to cry again. I'm going to cry again. <laughs> I know. Isn't this such a good one? I love you so much. You're my best friend. (laughs) Aren't you so excited? I've been so excited. Yes, I'm crying. So count this for the on the list of times I made you cry before I even started this. I'm just like, I am so grateful (laughs) that I have a best friend who knows how to pick things. That will make me cry out of excitement because everything is terrible. Listen, uh, it's very exciting. Who? Uh, so buckle ready. the buck up. I'm not ready. I'm like about to have a full breakdown. If you have a breakdown, you'll never get to hear the mystery. I know. I'm just really happy. <laughs> Well, we can just live in that for a minute if you like. Uh, <laughs> I'll just drink my beer while you cry a little. Oh my god! Oh. By the way, I just want to throw this out there, you guys. Give us money so we can go on tour someday, and you can watch her cry in person. It's funny because it really it takes me by surprise every time. <laughs> It's like, it's like my brain catches up. I don't know why you would do anything else. My bra- <laughs> it's like, I have the, like, I hear Blackbeard's treasure. <laughs> and my brain is like, <gasps> and then like, and then like the rest of me catches up. And I'm already crying by the time I've caught up to the fact that I've had like a tidal wave of emotions. <laughs> Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. It all started with Theodosia. That was the one. I know. I didn't know I could feel this much. I've been shut down for so long. <laughs> and they say art isn't essential. <laughs> it's like when I told my mom I didn't want to watch Lady Bird because I thought that it would make me feel too many things. And she went, what the fuck, Kayla? What else is art for? <laughs> I was like, she doesn't say fuck lightly, so. She really wants me to watch a movie about a teenage girl and her troubled relationship with her mom. Listen, touche, Susan. (laughs) Susan, touche. Touche. (laughs) Hey, Sue, touche. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fuckle the buck up. (sighs) Okay, I'm ready. I'm so sweaty already. (sighs) Okay, you know what? Also, I got to say, last week it took you 14 minutes to make me cry, and we're only on minute 10. 
Wow. Are we already on 10? Time flies when you're having fun. And time flies when you've been crying for three of them. Yeah. For point. three times. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Start, start. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. It's also, not TiVo, Kayla. Otherwise, <laughs> <it's> just like... <laughs> okay, for our younger listeners, TiVo was like... <laughs> this like top of the line technology that came out in like the year 2000 and it went it made like kick, kid picks noises so you would like rewind and it would be like <laughs> and you would fast forward and it would be like boop, boop. <laughs> I remember TiVo featured heavily in Miranda's arc in the later seasons of Sex in the City that's how old that thing is ugh <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay. On the freezing cold night of December 3rd, 1926, Agatha Christie leaves her home at Sunningdale in Berkshire, driving her green Morris Crowley Roadster. She does not return home that night. Mm-hmm. The next morning at 11 a.m., Superintendent William Kenward of the Surrey Police re- receives a report of a road accident at Newlands Corner. The green Morris Cowley Roadster is found halfway down a grassy slope, well off the main road, with its bonnet buried in some bushes as if it had got out of control. Right next to the chalk quarry. Inside is a fur coat, a dressing case containing various articles of ladies wearing apparel, and a driving license indicating that the owner was Mrs. Agatha Christie of Sunningdale, Berks. I have a question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between wearing apparel and plain apparel? No. This is, but that's a quote. They just called it wearing apparel and yes. then it just got shortened to apparel. I guess so, yeah. Great. Ladies wearing apparel. Perfect. The police have already issued the following missing, missing person description Age 35, height 5 feet 7 inches, hair reddish and shingled, eyes gray, complexion fair. Well-built, dressed in a gray and dark gray cardigan, small green velour hat, wearing a platinum ring with one pearl, but no wedding ring. I hope someone describes me as well-built after I I was thinking that. (laughs) It's like so great. Like, oh, really? Thank you. (laughs) No wedding ring. By the afternoon, the press has gotten hold of the story of the disappearance and has already descended on the Christie's house. The Times publishes a story that says, The novelist's car was found abandoned near Guilford on the edge of a chalk pit, the front wheels actually overhanging the edge, the paper reported. The car evidently had run away, and only a thick hedge growth prevented it from plunging into the pit. From the start, the police hint that they suspect suicide. Her husband, Archibald, dismisses this theory by pointing out that most people commit suicide at home and do not drive off in the middle of the night. Okay, Archie, hold on. I know. William Kenward of the Surrey Police Department organizes an extensive search of the area, including the first time that planes are used to search for a missing person in the UK. Wow. And, which also includes deep-sea divers scouring the allegedly bottomless lake known as the Silent Pool. How allegedly is it bottomless? Just local legend said that it was (laughs) bottomless, but everyone knows it's not. Copy. Uh, deep sea divers scouring the allegedly bottomless lake known as the Silent Pool. 
Yep, that's me. I guess you're probably wondering how I got here. Well, it's a long story. It starts in October of 1912 when Agatha Christie was introduced to Archibald Archie Christie. Here's how that story goes. (laughs) In October of 1912, Agatha was introduced to Archie, who was then an army officer who was seconded to the Royal Flying Corps in April of 1913. The two of them quickly fell in love, and three months after their first meeting, Archie proposed and Agatha accepted. When World War I broke out in August of the following year, Archie was sent to France to fight the German forces. They married on the afternoon of Christmas Eve 1914 while he was home on leave. Archie rose through the ranks and became a colonel, eventually becoming stationed in England, and Agatha became a member of the Voluntary Aid Detachment of the Red Cross. She first worked unpaid as a nurse, and then she qualified to become an apothecary's assistant, and so she became a dispenser. I love that it goes nurse, apothecary's assistant. I know. <laughs> um, this is also where she learned so much about poison, which plays into her writing career. <sighs> That's so fucking cool. And it's also important to know that she knows quite a bit of poison, if we're going to talk about the theory that this was suicide. In 1916, she wrote her first mystery novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. And after a few years of trying to get it published, she finally sold it to, in 1920, to the publishing company, The Bodley Head, on the condition that she changed how the solution to the mystery was revealed. She did so and signed a contract which committed her to offering her next five books to The Bodley Head, which she later said she felt was a bit exploitative. Her first novel was finally published in 1920. Meanwhile, she also gave birth to her first and only child, Rosalind Margaret Clarissa, in August of 1919. Named for Rosalind from As You Like It, I Mm -hmm. believe. Margaret, as in Margaret Stabile, and Clarissa from (laughs) Clarissa Explains It All. Yes, yes. 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 As a historian, I know these things. After the war, after the war, I went back to New York. Uh, After the war, I went back to New York. (laughs) I finished up my studies and I practiced law. (laughs) Anyway. Practiced law. Burr worked next door. (laughs) So after the war, Archie left the Air Force and started working in the city financial sector. Uh, Agatha's second novel was published in 1922, and it earned her $50, which is $2,800 in today money. It's also more in that year money than we've ever made in our lives. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) On anything. On anything. In 1922, Archie was offered a position by Major Ernest Belcher, which is just such a good name. What a name. As a financial advisor for the British Empire Exhibition Tour. What is that? The purpose of the tour was to promote the the forthcoming British Empire exhibition, which was to be held at Wembley in 1924 and 1925. The British Empire exhibition, because it took me forever to figure out what this was, because no one, like, like, if you look up the Wikipedia, it tells you all about, like, where it was held and how they built Wembley Stadium for it. And, like, all the details, but no one tells you, like, what it is. I imagine it's like if you like Googled Epcot, it'd be like Epcot and you'd be like, no, no, no what is it though? Yes. And truly. it'd be like, it's also still, what is Epcot? Unknown. But 
Yeah, so the answer is it's a colonialist exhibition that the British government put on to just exhibit things from like different countries that they've colonized in oh, order so it was to like a traveling British museum. Yes, but the goal is to boost trade and garner garner support for imperialism basically. So they were trying to boost trade by showing off shit they had stolen from those people. <laughs> basically, yes. <laughs> okay, guys. So uh, in 1922, they left their daughter with Agatha's mother and her sister, and they went on the Around the World promotional tour for the British Empire exhibition. Uh, the tour lasted 10 months, and they visited South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, and Canada. They learned to surf prone in South Africa, and then in Waikiki, they were among the first British people to surf standing up. Wow. Bravo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At the beginning of 1925, Agatha was invited to participate in a committee to design and organize uh, the children's section of the 1925 British Empire Exhibition in Wembley. They were showing off the children they stole? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so another friend of Major Ernest Belcher's named Nancy Neal was also invited to be a member of the committee, and together they designed the centerpiece, which was the Treasure Island exhibit. <gasps> and the Treasure Island exhibit was apparently a huge hit. Yeah. There are old newspaper clippings about it where you can see pictures of it and they tell they they say like Miss Christie and Miss Neal and Miss so and so arranged the tre like Treasure Island exhibit. That's so cool. I know it's also like a little bit sexist that they were delegated the centerpiece, but it's awesome. You mean the centerpiece of like the children's exhibit? Centerpiece I'm thinking of table centerpieces. What are you saying? Oh, no. Yeah, it's the centerpiece of the children's section of the exhibition. Oh, so, so it's, it's like, like the main thing. It's like the main attraction oh, of the children's section. I thought section. they were doing like decorations. No, no, no. They designed, <laughs> yeah. No, they designed, they basically designed Treasure Island at Disneyland. Oh, man, that's kids. way cooler. Yeah. That's not sexist hit. at all. That's way harder. No, it's dope. <laughs> it's dope. Um, yeah, and like, I mean, she was a, like a fiction novelist, so I'm sure they were like, yeah, she knows God, what she's so doing. That's so cool. When they got back, they lived in a few different flats in London, and then eventually uh, Archie wanted to move to Sunningdale, Berkshire, which is like, an, I believe, about an hour or so outside of London. So they bought a house in Sunningdale, and they named it Styles after the mansion in Agatha's first detective novel. Uh, I love a town where you name your house. Me too. So rich. <laughs> so, so rich. Agatha described the house as a, quote, sort of a millionaire Savoy suite transferred to the country. Oh, that's the richest <laughs> sentence. <laughs> sentence I've ever The richest heard. combination of words I've ever yes. heard. In April of 1926, Agatha's mother died. And the two had been very close. And after she passed away, Agatha suffered from insomnia. She ate less. She felt confused. She was lonely. She was desperately unhappy. She plunged into a deep depression. And according to the press, she went to a village in the south of France to recuperate from a quote-unquote breakdown caused by quote-unquote overwork. Sure. It wasn't the death of her mother. It was overwork. Couldn't be. Give that woman a vibrator. <laughs> I do also think, though, that she may have sort of fed them that story because she didn't want people to, like, know her business. That's fair. In August of 1926, 
Archie asked Agatha for a divorce. <gasps> what? He asked her for a divorce because he had fallen, lo- fallen in love with his mistress and he wanted to marry her. Was she a hot priest teaching him the classics? No, she was none other than Nancy Neal, the friend of Ernest Belcher's who was on the committee with Agatha. Uh. They were all like friends and <gasps> she was like his golfing buddy. And became his mistress, and he fell in love with her. And he asked Agatha for a divorce. Oh, my God. I know. On December 3rd, he had told Agatha that he had accepted an invitation to go to a house party at their friends, Mr. and Mrs. James, who lived in Godalming. Miss Neal had also been invited And there were only the four of them and no other guests, and he intended to go without (gasps) Agatha. What? Hold on. So, wait. The four of whom? It was the couple who was the couple, and then Archie and his mistress, and not Agatha. Correct. He was like, like I'm going out of town for the weekend with Nancy. Uh. (laughs) And they were like Agatha and his friends. That's so brutal. So Agatha packed her attache case. She went upstairs. She kissed her daughter goodnight. She got into her car and drove off. <sighs> now we're up to speed. Oh, my God. Um, I'm going to send you really quick this picture of her car with the sheriffs looking at it. Because we're going to need to post it, like, on the Instagram and it's really amazing. It's like exactly what you would picture for this mystery. Oh my god, this is phenomenal. This is this is her car on the side of the road with all of the sheriffs investigating. This is it. like chitty chitty bang bang, but if it was like a dark crime novel. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you know what though? Chitty chitty bang bang actually almost works as like a <laughs> It's just like kiss kiss bang bang but <laughs> a little chitty. <laughs> It's kiss, chitty, bang, bang. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So a local who worked at the quarry named Edward McAllister comes forward claiming that he had been approached by a woman matching Agatha's description at 6.20 a.m. on the side of the road asking asking him to help her start her car near where the car was found. Okay. He said she had been in a strange manner. This is a quote, and wore no coat or hat despite the cold weather. Once the car had started, she thanked him and drove away. So Kenward William, who's the Sur- the Surrey police who who's in doing the investigation, is convinced that it was Agatha. And it's super weird because it was freezing out that night. So she wasn't wearing her coat or her hat or anything when she approached the driver. He said she was acting strange. He helped her start her car at 6.20 a.m. And then here now, sometime between 6.20 a.m. and 11 a.m., they find the car. And how far is the car from this guy? He, well, he worked at the quarry. So I can only assume that he was like on his way to work when he ran into her. So it couldn't have been more than like a mile or two away from where they found the car. And there's a five hour gap. Mm hmm. And nobody heard the car crash who was, like, nobody in the quarry. No, it's the English countryside. But if they're a mile away, I guess it's kind of not a big car. (laughs) No, no, no. They're like jalopies. (laughs) Yes. Right. Okay, copy that. 
On December 8th, Archie's brother receives a letter from Agatha that was postmarked December 3rd before she left that night. It was postmarked 9.45 a.m. on December 3rd, which is the day that she left the house. Yeah, I just am very excited to hear what it says. (laughs) It says that she's going to a Yorkshire spa for rest and treatment, quote unquote. Okay. December 10th, the police expand their search, even bringing in the Christie's dog to see if it could track Agatha's scent. Evidently, it just, quote unquote, whined pitifully. Oh, baby. December 11th, the Times reports that no one has seen her since she left her home, but that a note that she had given to her secretary the day she disappeared has been recovered. December 12th, the police ask motorists for help tracking Agatha's movements, and the Times publishes statements from Agatha's secretary. Okay, am I going to get to hear the letter now? Yeah. Okay. I was mad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to hear it in a second, because there's two columns where they quote her secretary, and I'm going to read both of them to you. Okay. This headline is, Secretary Flouts Voluntary Flight. The novelist's secretary today indignantly denied the idea of her voluntary disappearance for purposes of publicity. It is ridiculous, said the secretary. Mrs. Christie is much too quite a lady for that. She never for a moment would think of causing all this sorrow and suspense. Naturally, I have a great deal to do with her and know her ways and moods intimately. That's why I am certain that the people who suspect her of disappearing either for the sake of publicity or to work out a new plot or for any other reason are wrong. It is the last thing in the world she would do. Before her disappearance, Mrs. Christie wrote three letters in none of which she said anything indicating mental aberration. The most important was one left for her secretary. It is the only one that was not destroyed and it is in the hands of the police. One of the letters was a personal note to her husband. He declares there was nothing in it having any possible bearing on his wife's whereabouts. Sure. Another was to a brother-in-law. It gave no clue to her movements. Both of these letters were burned. The letter to the secretary contained only ordinary instructions. This is the second column. Cancelled weekend engagement. At first I thought it unimportant, said the secretary, and I did not think of showing it to the the police, but in order to satisfy them, I handed it over. It merely told me to cancel an engagement she had at Beverly in Yorkshire because she was feeling queer. She would not go there for the weekend. She wrote that she was going for a run in her car and would let me know Saturday by telegram or telephone where she was. There was nothing unusual in this because often when she felt a little restless, she would go for a run in her car and come back refreshed. She did not write the words attributed to her to the effect that if she did not leave Sunningdale soon, it would be the end of her. There's nothing of the kind in her note. I forgot to mention that, uh, like some, like the Daily Mirror or somebody was like, she left a note to her secretary that said, if I don't get out of here soon, something, it'll be the end of me. And she's like, that's not true. (laughs) Yeah. One clue on which hope had been based was abandoned today. It suggested an explanation of the mystery might be found in an examination of the unfinished manuscript of the novelist's story, The Blue Train, which was believed to be in the possession of her brother-in-law. We are disappointed, said his wife today, that his suggestion has come to nothing. It was not The Blue Train, but an earlier manuscript that Mrs. Christie sent to my husband. What is The Blue Train? Just a book she wrote. Have you read it? No. Hmm. So basically what happened was they started poring over all of her novels, looking for clues. And they thought that she had sent an unfinished manuscript to a friend. Yeah. And so they like they were like, let's read this. But it turned out that it was a manuscript of a previous book she published. I hope that if I die prematurely, someone goes through like our 
writing <laughs> for clues for clues yeah well if you play this episode backwards it's just um it just reading. says maggie killed me but it's fine <laughs> let her go Oh, I was going to say, if you play this episode backwards, it's just us reading all of the essays we wrote in college that never amounted to anything. <laughs> the hours of work. Yeah. Wasted. So in the mail, which is a newspaper, which is confusing, mm-hmm. there was an interview <laughs> with Archie where he said, my wife had discussed the possibility of disappearing at will. Some time ago, she told her sister, I could disappear if I wished and said about it carefully. Damn. During this time, they held a seance at the quarry. Yes, of course. The detectives read all of her books and Mm -hmm. all of her unfinished manuscripts for clues. The tabloids, well, actually, the police gave this theory to the tabloids, and the tabloids posited the theory that she may be in London dressed in men's attire, hiding out. God, that's so hot. That's what I would do. I know. And they even published, like, a rendering of what she would look like. (gasps) in like men's attire this is some wish fulfillment nonsense i know and my favorite sir arthur conan doyle author of the sherlock holmes series who was what is a friend of hers author of what <laughs> shut up <laughs> who was a friend of hers and also as we know very interested in the occult took one of her gloves to a medium <gasps> and asked them to see if they could figure out where she was I love it. Everyone is just using this as an excuse to do all the fun witchy stuff they wanted to do. Exactly. And they also brought a medium to her car, where her car was, and the medium said that she got the feeling that Agatha was met with foul play. (gasps) Wow. What a conclusion to draw. December 14th, 11 days after she went missing, the head waiter in the hydropathic hotel in Harrogate, North Yorkshire, looked more closely at a female guest and recognized her from the newspaper photographs. He called the police. The police called Archie, who took an afternoon train from London to Harrogate, and learned that his wife had been staying in the hotel for about a week, and she had apparently seemed normal and happy. She sang, danced, played billiards, read the newspaper reports of her disappearance, chatted with her fellow guests, and went for walks. Oh my god, she had checked in she had checked in under the name Teresa Neal. Oh my god. What a savage. This information came out in the press and literally everybody involved because no one knew about that about his mistress Nancy Neal when the when the news came out in the press that she checked in under the surname Neal everybody from Archie to Nancy to Nancy's, Nancy's father spoke to the press and was like I have no idea why she would use that name. Can't <gasps> think of a reason. Guess we'll never know. Stay in your lane. <laughs> <laughs> That's Literally, the- even her dad was like, my daughter is very upset to find out the development that her, our name was used, but we can't imagine why. <laughs> That's why we're here speaking to the press. We have yes, no idea. Exactly. We have nothing to hide. We're here to just tell you that we have nothing to hide. Eggs fucking Zackley. Eggs scrambled and Zackley. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just make that up? Yep. That's amazing. Every day I get one really good improvisation and sometimes they happen when we record (laughs) oh my god i wish i could hear all the ones that happen when we're not recording oh it's just me to my cat (laughs) um okay so this is a quote from colin wilson's the encyclopedia of unsolved mysteries which is the book i was telling you about that i'm not gonna let (gasps) you read 
Agatha made her way. Okay, so yeah, so Archie goes to the hotel to like identify her. <laughs> and she's just having a grand old time. <laughs> yes. She also was apparently dressed lavishly. Oh, and she I had spent her. like, she had like $300 on her. And she had spent like a bunch of money at the hotel, but she had not cashed any checks. Like, we, they don't know where she got the money. <laughs> <laughs> I bet she was squirreling it away. That's like, I what bet I it think was too. her book money and she was hiding it. That's what I think too. From fucking Archibald. So when Archie shows up to identify her, this is a quote from this book. Agatha made her way to the dinner table, picked up an evening paper, which contained the story of the search for herself, together with a photograph, and was reading it when her husband made his way over to her. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> she, she only seemed to regard him as an acquaintance whose identity she could not quite fix, said the hotel's manager. Oh. And Archibald Christie told the press... She has suffered from the most complete loss of memory, and I do not think she knows who she is. No, she's just a straight-up fucking savage. Uh, Exactly. A doctor later confirmed that she was indeed suffering from amnesia. Mm. The next day, she was sent to stay with her sister, where she was kept under lock and key away from the press. After this, Agatha and Archie separated. Agatha went to live in a flat in London, and Archie stayed at Stiles so that he could sell it. And then in 1928, Archie married Nancy Neal. What happened to their kid? Agatha kept custody. Okay, good. During and after the ordeal, sales of Agatha's books skyrocketed. Because at the time, she'd only published like three or four. That makes my heart sore. (laughs) I know. Uh, In 1928, she gave an interview to the Daily Mail where she said, On December 3rd, she drove past a quarry on the way back from visiting a relative in Dorking. Quote, there came, to, there came into my mind the thought of driving into it, she told the newspaper. However, as my daughter was with me in the car, I dismissed the idea at once. That night, I felt terribly miserable. I felt that I could go on no longer. I left home that night in a state of high nervous strain with the intention of doing something desperate. She continued, when I reached a point on the road which I thought was near the quarry, I turned the car off the road down the hill towards it. I left the wheel and let the car run. The car struck something with a jerk and pulled up suddenly. I was flung against the steering wheel and when my, and my head hit something. Up to this moment, I was Mrs. Christie. So she maintained the story that she hit her head when she crashed the car and suffered from temporary amnesia. Oh my God. After Archie married Nancy Neal, and by the way, I didn't include this part, but I feel like I want to mention it. She later like sued him and she filed for the divorce like basically i can't remember what the phrase is it's like a greek word for like a law word but basically she filed for divorce that essentially like appealed to a judge and was like if he doesn't respond to this like she just gets the divorce anyway and the judge was like sure you got it (laughs) so oh yeah (laughs) she like filed for divorce and got it and then i think she later sued him but i'm not sure if it was for like some of the proceeds from the sale of the house or what Later in 1928, so this is right after he marries Nancy Neal, she took the Orient Express to Istanbul Mm. and then to Baghdad, where she met an archaeologist and his wife who who invited her to come with them on their 1930 dig in Iraq. (gasps) So That's in 1930, <laughs> yeah, me too. So in 1930, she went to their archaeological dig in Iraq. And while she was there, she met an archaeologist named Max Malowin. She did not fuck an archaeologist. Who was 14 years younger than she was. No. 
This is a quote. He wondered whether she might be repelled by his fascination with ancient human remains, but she reassured him by saying, I adore corpses and stiffs. <gasps> this is my dream meet cute. They were married oh in 1930. My... <laughs> and then Max was later knighted and became Sir Max Malowin. That's This is the hottest thing you've ever said. I know. It's hotter than the priest thing. <laughs> Well, yeah, she basically just went and, like, met Indiana Jones. Ugh. And then, while turning out book she after book... She met Sir Indiana Jones. Yes, correct. While she was, like, writing all of her books, she would accompany him on his annual digs in Iraq. <gasps> and her international travels by train with Max inspired Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, my God. She once told someone, an archaeologist is the best husband any woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. <laughs> I'm obsessed with her. I'm in love with her. I <laughs> oh my god, I have a crush. This the is two a of them crush. lived together in apparent happiness until her peaceful death at the age of 86. <gasps> An estimated billion copies of her novels have been sold in English and another billion in 103 other languages. She is the best-selling author of all time behind the Bible and Shakespeare. This and is, I'm she is the best-selling fiction author of all time, period. All you got to do is fake your own death, <laughs> ladies. To get back at your husband who's cheating on you. And then use his mistress's last name when you check into a hotel. Correct. And then fake amnesia. It's time for the theories. <laughs> I'm excited. Theory one is that she staged it as a publicity stunt to sell more mystery novels, which I don't really buy. I don't buy that. She married an archaeologist. She would never. Correct. Theory two is that she staged it as a publicity stunt to bring Archie's affair into the public eye, which I think is like possible, but I don't think that she really wanted everyone to know about it. I don't buy that one. The third is that she faked her own disappearance to ruin Archie's weekend because she knew... That he was going out of town with Nancy the next day, and she knew that as soon as she went missing, the police would be knocking, breaking down the door, and he wouldn't be able to go. <laughs> I like that one. That's deliciously petty. Yes. <laughs> it's also, um, like, some people say that she, her car was, like, because I don't really know the geographic layout that well, and some people have said this doesn't make sense because you wouldn't take this route to get there, but that where her car was found was, like, somewhere between their house and Godalming where he was supposed God. to be going but it doesn't make sense because he hadn't left yet or maybe he ha- no he maybe ha- I don't know anyway doesn't matter okay theory number four is that she really hit her head while she was driving and she really suffered amnesia which is like I guess that's possible uh yeah, theory five is comes from an author named Andrew Wilson who studied her work her life and police accounts from the time And he wrote a book about the disappearance and he posits the theory that she did leave home intending to take her own life. And he believes that she drove to the quarry and like turned the car off the road like she said she did. But after crashing her car, she came to her senses and decided that suicide would be unchristian because she was devoutly Christian. And so he thinks that she went to take her life and then failed and then to conceal her embarrassment that she had even like thought of like contemplated killing herself she invented the amnesia story and he cites her semi-autobiographical novel called unfinished portrait where she writes about 
the suicide attempt of her alter ego, Celia, this quote, she says, she admitted that it had been very wicked of her to try. I buy that one. So he thinks that she left the house, like, in, because she, she said in that interview, like, I left in a state of high nervous strain and, like, I was going to do something desperate. So he thinks yeah. that she really left intending to take her life. Yeah. And that she did not succeed. And then she basically, like, got on a train and went to stay, you know. Um, the last theory, of course, is the one that I think that we, like, ascribe to at least initially and maybe still, which is that she is just, like, a petty queen and, <laughs> like, just, like, did the best fake disappearance ever. God, it's that's what I want it to be. Well, and I think, too, what it's interesting because I think that if we look at the clues, it doesn't make sense for her to bring her attache case full of clothes for the weekend if she's not planning on going away for the weekend. Like, does it make sense for her to bring a suitcase full of clothes if she's planning on driving her car into the quarry. Yeah, my only question is then how did her car end up in the quarry? I think that she crashed it. On Like, she just, like, her plan was drive by the quarry, crash the car, hide out in a hotel, get found by her husband, and, like, shame him, like, the petty queen that she should be. Could be. I think my I think my theory is something more like, she was highly emotional. She didn't know exactly what she was going to do. She packed the bags. She put them in the car. She got in the car and drove around until like 6 a.m. Her, she couldn't get her car started or whatever. Because also, like, keep in mind, she did, we, we don't know for sure that it was her, but it makes a lot of sense that that person that she ran into was, that it was her that ran into yeah. that guy. He also identified the car. So and there she were was only clearly like two cars on the road, right? Back then, so she clearly did drive around all night, which tells me that she didn't have like a distinct plan. But one theory is that she well, oh, because here's the other thing: the letter that she sent to her brother-in-law was postmarked in London, like at nine the day before, and so. Some posit, and I think she may have even alluded to this in one of her accounts, because she never she never told anyone where she was all night. God, I love it. But some people say maybe she drove to London and drove back. Like maybe That's like she... when I drive to Malibu when I'm upset. Yes, exactly. I get it. So and and her secretary even said like she just gets in her car and drives when she's stressed out. So I think she packed a bag, got in her car, drove around all night because she was trying to figure out what the fuck to do with herself. I think that she she said in that interview that, that earlier that day she'd driven by the quarry and had the thought, like, I wanna, I'm just going to drive my car into the quarry, and that she didn't because her daughter was in the car. And I think, it's a, I think it, that the truth is a combination of all the stories. So I think that she, like, packed the bag, drove the car around all night, didn't know what to do. I think she had the thought again, like, what if I crash my car into the quarry? And then I think she either turned her car off the road and just, like, let go of the wheel... Or I think she stopped the car, put it in neutral, pushed it down a hill, and then walked to the train, caught a train to Yorkshire, and checked into the hotel. Because think about this also. She left her driver's license and her coat. Yeah. And her attache case. But she had her money. Yeah. 
I mean, it sounds like some shit you would do if you were in, like, extreme distress. Exactly. I've never once needed a coat during a panic attack, I'll tell you that. Exactly. That's exactly what... Literally, I had the same thought because everyone said, like, she must have had amnesia because how would... Why would she walk away in freezing weather without her coat? And the answer is she was stressed the fuck out. Yeah. Like, when I used to wander around Manhattan in, like, a t-shirt and shorts in the middle of winter when I was having anxiety attacks. Yeah. If you're, like, manic or having a panic attack or any of that shit, like... Oh, yeah. Remember when I, like, went to the hospital without shoes? (laughs) Yeah. Like, multiple times. But I walked to the ER in uh, in college without shoes on in the middle of December when I was, yeah. like, super manic. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think that the truth is somewhere in between because I also don't think that she – I think if she really had – well, here's the thing. I don't buy the amnesia. No. Absolutely not. So – but I do think that, this, that she may have tr- tried to kill herself or she may have been considering trying to kill herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was also super distressed because remember her mother had just died like several months. She her mother had died in April, and then her husband had asked for a divorce in August, and then yeah, I mean December third he was like, "I'm going out of town with Nancy." Yeah, so brain like, overload. You can't. Yeah, that's too many things. Right. So I think it's a combination of things, and I think she probably had a great fucking time in Yorkshire. Oh, and I'm sure she had so much fun. I want to do that. We did that. We went to Roswell. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, we did. <laughs> and she was dancing and. I just Having love the time. image of her with the newspaper, with her disappearance mm, yes, in it. Yes, on it. And she's And just, like, it. looking up at her soon-to-be ex-husband like she doesn't know who he is. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I, that's why I had to include that direct quote God, from that it's book. So, it's I so want to make that into a fucking short film. Like, it's we should. so good. We should. It's such a good moment. It's so cinematic. It's so cinematic. And it's so petty. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Um... Yeah, so that is the mystery of the disappearance of Agatha Christie. I love it. I love it, too. I love her. She's my petty queen mom. Yes, correct. Mm. I hope one day I'm presented with an opportunity to be that petty. We can all only hope that someday (laughs) we're we're presented with an opportunity to be that petty. We can only aspire to. Yeah, a girl can dream. (laughs) I do. I dream about it every night. Shall we take a break? Yeah, I love that. Thank you. I'm glad you loved it. You're welcome. Yay! I okay. knew you would enjoy it. Okay, we'll, take a break, and then we we'll come be back. right back. We'll be right back. What is that, Nickelodeon? Cartoon <laughs> the words you just said could have been literally anything. I'm. I'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll figure out what it is. Don't worry. Okay, great. Okay, and break. And we're back. And we're back. Yay. How's it going over there? Oh, great. <laughs> what you doing? I'm just this. The task ahead of me is daunting. Uh oh. But you're really I selling think, it. I think I can do it. <laughs> As my own best advocate, historically. Yeah. I thought I was your best advocate. Oh, you are. I'm. I'm my worst advocate. Yeah. Okay, as long as we're clear. 
I'm very clear on how well both of us represent me. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I didn't do any voices in the first half, which means there's like a a home voice quota. You might reach it in mine. (gasps) I'm so excited. No, I mean, who knows? I don't know. We don't know. Stay in your lane. (laughs) Stay in your lane, but also... Buckle the buck up for what I'm about to fucking tell you. Tell me, tell me. Okay. So, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, several U.S. Army officers attempted to use paranormal phenomena, New Age philosophy, and elements of the human potential movement to enhance U.S. intelligence gathering capabilities and improve overall operational effectiveness. These are their stories. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to tell you the story today of the men who stare at goats. (gasps) Holy shit. Yeah. That's amazing. I know. This episode, like, is, (laughs) like, the star power of this episode. (laughs) I know. I know. Wow. It's incredible. We have George Clooney. (laughs) (laughs) So, Okay. I got half of my information from the book, The Men Who Stare at Goats by John Ronson. Mm-hmm. And the other half from a thing that I didn't know existed, which is a documentary series on Channel 4 in England, which is called Crazy Rulers of the World. And cool. par- it's by John Ronson. And part one is titled The Men Who Stare at Goats. And it's basically like they made the documentary first and then he wrote the book after. And it's fucking insane. I love where it's going so far. So, everything in this story started with a man named Jim Channon, who was a lieutenant colonel in Vietnam. And there were some studies conducted after World War II by military historian General S.L.A. Marshall who interviewed thousands of infantrymen and concluded that only 15 to 20 percent of them actually shot to kill while in combat. Interesting. Uh, The rest of them had fired high or had not fired at all and just like made themselves busy with other things. (laughs) Interesting. The studies also found that 98 percent of soldiers who shot to kill were deeply traumatized by their actions. Um, And the other 2% were diagnosed as, quote, aggressively psychopathic personalities who didn't mind killing under any circumstances whatsoever. Also, keep in mind that this is post-World War II, so I understand that aggressively psychopathic is not how we refer. A clinical term now. Yeah, that's not how we talk about it but, but that's basically they... the result of the study was no one wants to kill anyone and people who were drafted into service didn't try to kill people because they didn't want to and people who did kill people out of a sense of duty were deeply traumatized by it and those who weren't traumatized were suffered from some form of sociopathy exactly is that like so, a good summarizing yes here's another summary of it there was a man named lieutenant colonel dave grossman who worked at the Killology Research Group, who summed it up like this. There's something about continuous, inescapable combat which will drive 98% of all men insane, and the other 2% were crazy when they got there. (laughs) Yeah. 
That sounds about right. So, <laughs> yeah. So Jim saw this statistic basically play out in combat when he was in Vietnam. And he realized that a lot of his men had died simply because the soldiers were, as he describes them, instinctively guileless and kind-hearted and not the killing machines the army wanted them to be. Yeah. And the conclusion that he came to was that United States soldiers were not cunning enough. He said, the kind of person attracted to military service has a great deal of difficulty being cunning. We suffered in Vietnam from not being cunning. We just presented ourselves with our righteousness and got our butts shot off. Interesting. So is his theory basically that they're, like, that U.S. like infantrymen are not, like, innovative, creative problem solvers? Is that, like, what the problem is like kind of yeah they just kind of show up like they're not strategic enough they just kind of show up with their guns and like yeah but yes but it's kind it's like they're not strategic enough in the right way specifically Uh, well you'll it'll make sense because his thing about being cunning is like the beginning okay so in 1977 Jim wrote to Lieutenant General Walter T. Kerwin, who was the vice chief of staff for the Army, and explained that he wanted to go on a fact-finding mission so he could teach the Army to be more cunning. And the Pentagon agreed to pay his salary and expenses while he went on a journey. So he went on a journey. And he decided, basically, that the best way to learn how to be cunning was to go to California and meet everyone in every new age circle. Interesting. So I there, I'm going to give you one example because there's a lot of examples. He went to every new age meeting that ex- he went, I think he met 150 people, like 150 leaders of new age movements. Mm-hmm. In 1978, he went to go see Steve Halpern, who composes meditation and subliminal CDs. Okay. He went to this, like, New Age conference that Stephen was working at, and he said that he wanted to use Stephen's music to somehow make soldiers more peaceful and maybe even play it in the field to make the other side's soldiers more peaceful, too. And Stephen was like, great, here's all these stories about the power of subliminal sounds. And Jim was like, great, thanks, bye, and just left. And he never really explained what he was doing. He definitely, every person he met when he was on this New Age tour, he was like, I'm working with the Army. But he never said really what he was going to do with any of the information. Um, Steven says that he thinks that Jim wanted his music specifically because it, quote, allows people to have a spiritual experience without naming it. He said he needed to convince the higher-up military brass. These are people who had never known a meditative state, and he wanted to get them into it without naming it. Interesting. So he went on this whole journey, and... He returned to the East Coast in 1979, and he wrote what is called 
the first Earth Battalion operations manual, which as, <laughs> yes, it's exactly as insane as you think it is. John Ronson describes it as a 125-page mixture of drawings and graphs and maps and polemical essays and point-by-point redesigns of every aspect of military life toward a, like, new age, peace-first point of view. The opening line is, the U.S. Army doesn't really have any serious alternative than to be wonderful. Did you buy it yet? (laughs) Have you ordered a copy on, like, like a Kindle edition version yet? If you think I haven't already ordered frames for every page. (laughs) (laughs) So um, here are some things that are in the plan. Uh, One thing is that um, soldiers would carry baby lambs into enemy territory and then greet the enemy with sparkly eyes and a hug. Excuse me? I... They would, I mean, baby lambs, (laughs) sparkly eyes, hug. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Okay. Um, The new uniform would include a loudspeaker that would play indigenous music and words of peace. And then. (laughs) This is the the kind of army I want to be a part of. No, I know I would absolutely do it. Is this just an army recruitment ad? Because now I'm into it. (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, So if the lambs and the sparkly eyes and hugs and indigenous music and words of peace didn't work, the speakers would then play discordant sounds like um, acid rock songs, but out of sync with each other. That's my nightmare. Go on. To confuse the enemy. Yeah, what a nightmare. Um, In this plan, soldiers would learn how to fall in love with everyone sense plant energy, pass through objects, stop their own hearts with no adverse effects, and be able to hear and see each other's thoughts. And the goal... Did you just read the back cover of the self-help book I was about to publish? Because that's all the stuff it promises. Well, unfortunately, it's already been written. Shit. I know. Um, the what am I going to goal... do with... Your sparkly lamb is your own eyes. <laughs> the book I'm writing. Just make it a blog. Good idea. Great. So the goal was to make United States soldiers what Jim called warrior monks. The warrior monk, as described by Jim, is someone who has the presence of the monk, the service and the dedication of the monk, and the absolute skill and precision of the warrior. Fuck yeah, dude. Right? <laughs> so he in he wrote it in 78. He like brought it to the military's attention in 1979. He went to the officers club in Fort Knox in ni- in spring of 1979. And on the way there, he was like, these ideas are like so insane. I can't just like give them a briefing like I have to initiate them into the first earth battalion he already though has more self-awareness than most people who move to Hollywood (laughs) because (laughs) most people who move to Los Angeles would see Steven Spielberg sitting at a fucking Starbucks and they would walk up at an aroma come on yeah with they would walk up to him with script in hand that that was just that and they would be like would you 
be interested in directing this film I wrote? They'd be like, can you give me notes? (laughs) No, they don't. They're not self-aware enough to need notes. They want him to sell it for them. You're right. You're right. They literally think they can give it to Steven Spielberg and that he'll sell it. (laughs) So the fact that this dude already was like, these ideas are a little insane. I'm going to have to work them first. Yeah. (laughs) Was already, I feel like, more self-aware. He knows exactly what he's doing. So he got to Fort Knox. He dragged every potted plant from around the base into a circle in the room they were meeting in, and he lit a single candle in the middle. I love And everyone, I know. And everyone came in, and he was like, okay, I want you guys to all say, like, he, and they all (laughs) laughed at him. And he was like, that was an order, basically. And they were like, well, okay. (laughs) And so they all were like, he, and... He started to give his speech, and these, like, high-ranking military men had been so wounded by Vietnam, actually started to listen to him. And by the end of the speech, they immediately offered him the position of commander of the 1st Earth Battalion. Wow. This is, like, such an inspirational story. I know. Like, if you can dream it, you can do it. This guy made up <laughs> an entire, like, segment of the army. He made up an army And became the commander. Well, he turned it down. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because the real Earth Battalion was the friends he made along the way? <laughs> no, his thinking was that if his specific manual went into official practice then his superiors would ask for measurable results and when his men couldn't literally stop their own hearts without damaging themselves or at all then the program would be shut down he was correct yeah he was basically like listen the literal ideas behind this are insane and we're not going to carry baby lambs into combat but the ideas behind what i'm saying are the point. So he and wrote a he, modest proposal. Exactly. <laughs> and he said, like, the point was that he wanted the ideas behind the plan to, like, float out and take root wherever fate decreed. Great. And someone from the documentary, I don't remember his name, but he said that releasing the first Earth Battalion operations manual was like dropping a grenade in the Pentagon because everyone was so scarred from Vietnam that like the ideas rang true to them and people all over the army started thinking about how they could begin to apply the ideas. And you know that like be all you can be army ad? Mm-hmm. That was inspired by the first Earth Battalion operations manual. That's amazing. Yeah. But... A lot of his superiors were very literally minded men. And one of those literally minded men who took very quickly to the 1st Earth Battalion Operations Manual was a man named Major General Albert Stubblebine II. That's not real. Going on. Exactly. (laughs) Who was the U.S. Army's chief of intelligence. Nice. He got this manual and started to take it literally he and he started to try to levitate and walk through walls how'd it go (laughs) 
poorly. <laughs> I just imagine like a thud and like an ouch. Yes. Have you ever seen the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats? No, I have not. Okay, highly recommend. It's a phenomenal film. Yeah, I believe it is. But the wall walking theory is plays like a really fun part in it, but I'm not going to spoil it for you or anyone who's listening who hasn't watched it, but definitely watch it. But so his wall theory was this. Walls are made up of atoms, and atoms are mostly made up of space. Bodies are made up of atoms and are therefore also mostly made up of space. All you have to do is merge that space. I love this. He said he never was able to get himself into the right state of mind. And he just like over and over like ran into walls. Ow. <laughs> yeah. Ow. It was just that. Ow. Like he became Ow. like, <laughs> he became known for like people coming into his office in Arlington, Virginia and him just like running into walls face first. Ow. <laughs> he just doesn't have a door on his office. <laughs> No, like for meetings. It's just a wall. No, oh, I know. It's just a wall. I'm, I'm just saying. He's like, and he never you, got in. <laughs> when you become enlightened, you can come in. You don't even need doors. Yeah. But he was Ow. like, <laughs> his, he, his thinking was like, I just can't get in the right headspace. I have too much going on. But <laughs> I think that. I make he, the same excuses. <laughs> He had no doubt that the ability to walk through walls would one day be a staple of United States military warfare, Here's the which thing, would it then could be right now, and we wouldn't know. This you have skipped ahead eight pages. Shit, sorry. <laughs> so he had no doubt that the ability to walk through walls would one day be a staple of military warfare, which would then end all wars because who wants to fuck with an army that can walk through walls? Right. And he was like, "Okay, I'm too busy." <laughs> who are the best people in the army to like undertake this practice? And his conclusion was the special forces. Yes. So he started what we know as the Stargate project, which, bum, bum. <laughs> which was like, Ronson bum, describes bum, it bum, as bum. <laughs> I'll do the Star Trek theme. So Ronson describes the Stargate project as quote basically half a dozen soldiers sitting inside a heavily guarded condemned clapboard building in Fort Meade, Maryland, trying to be psychic. Yes. And so no one told you life was gonna <laughs> be this way. Ow, 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 ow. <laughs> so he like Stubblebine started small. He started with um bending cutlery with your mind because he didn't want to like spook anybody. And he says, the key in all of this has nothing to do with bending metal. It was to do with Lord mercy, if I can do that with my mind, imagine what else I could do. So the Stargate unit did not officially exist. They were black ops. Um, occasionally one died or went stir crazy and then they just replaced them. And they would just like sit in a room and try to have visions. And if one had a vision, they would like sketch it or write it out and it would be passed along to the higher ups. But it was like very covert. And then... 
in the summer of 1983, after running the Stargate Project, General Stubblebine went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, with an idea. He wanted to convince the higher-ups of the United States Army to begin psychic training for all soldiers. He suggested that they teach them how to heal people psychically, how to use telekinesis, and in a last-ditch attempt, (laughs) how to stop the hearts of animals with their minds. Oh, why? I... Because war. Like... (laughs) But why animals? Because what, are they going to test it on humans? Um, but then why wouldn't they just be teaching them to stop humans' hearts and test it on animals? Well, that's what they're doing. Oh. Okay. But also, you're way ahead of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So he went into Fort Bragg, and he told them what he wanted to do, and he was not well-received. He was so Well, did he make them go he? (laughs) No, he did not. Okay, well, that's on you then. He was so aggressively not well-received that he went into early retirement in 1984. <laughs> and the official history of Army intelligence, like in their press packets, basically skips 1981 to 1984 when he was the chief. Oh, that's so sad. I know. What he didn't know was that while he was in Fort Bragg suggesting that they teach soldiers how to stop the hearts of animals with their minds and being laughed out of the room. A few yards down the road, there was a shed full of hundreds of debleated goats that the special forces were keeping secret under a black ops project known as Project Jedi, which was being led in part by a man named Colonel John Alexander, who was the person who introduced Stubblebine to the 1st Earth Battalion Operations Manual in the first place. Wow. The goal of Project Jedi was to create super soldiers or soldiers with superpowers. Cool. Now, we don't know whether the army stole his idea when he was doing Stargate or if they had already been doing it. And when he came to them, they denied him so that he wouldn't interfere. But the story is that they were doing it already. One of those super soldiers is retired Sergeant Major First Class and one-time Special Forces psychic spy, Glenn Wheaton. And John Ronson met with Glenn Wheaton, and he went into Glenn Wheaton's house, and Glenn Wheaton was like, how many light switches are in this room? (laughs) And John Ronson was like, I don't know. And he was like, how many chairs? He was like, I don't know. And he was like, if you were a super soldier, you would know. Okay. That's like, I mean, I get it. I get what he's doing. But (laughs) it's like when you're mad, like you're mad at your boyfriend and they're like, what do I do? And you're like, if you love me, you would know. (laughs) And it's like, I really feel like you're asking a lot. And I feel like you're maybe, like, choosing an arbitrary way of judging. No, he was just making a point. No, I know. (laughs) It just seems like a little bit teenage girlish to me, but it's okay. (laughs) It's very much like, I'm fine. If you were a super soldier, you would know. 
if you were super soldier, you'd know how many light switches are in my house, but whatever, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> brutal. It's and then <laughs> tweeting like, is it like really so bad that I just want someone who knows how many light switches are in my house? Like, is that too much to ask for? Upon I immediately think I entering. <laughs> yeah. So we accept the love we think we deserve. <laughs> We accept the observational powers we think we deserve. (laughs) (laughs) So he described the levels of super soldier training. Level one is the ability to... Super badass guy. (laughs) No. Do whatever you want. Level two. Double... Super, super badass guy. Super badass guy. (laughs) Do whatever you want and whatever everybody else wants at the same time. (laughs) Three. Paladin. (laughs) Four, dark elf mage. (laughs) Cleric. Just kidding. Okay. Level one is the ability to walk into a room and instantly be aware of every detail. Cool. Level two is intuition. Glenn describes this as when they were like training him. Is there some way we can develop you so you make correct decisions? Like somebody runs up to you and says, there's a fork in the road. Do we turn left or right? And you just go, we go right. Yeah, it's called being a white guy because no matter what you say, it'll be justified. (laughs) That's the um, history of the United States Army. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Level three is invisibility. Originally, they meant literal invisibility, but eventually it became just, John Ronson describes it as, finding a way of not being seen. By understanding the linkage between observation and reality, you can learn to dance with invisibility. If you're not observed, you are invisible. You only exist if someone sees you. Wait, I, here's the thing about the invisibility thing. I actually agree with that. And I think a good example is the Golden State Killer original Night Stalker. Mm. Like, he was at those town hall meetings. Like, he was a fucking cop. He was just walking around. But, like, he understood that if you're not observed, you're not seen. Like, you can be invisible if you, like, make yourself invisible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I think that, yeah, it's definitely existentially troubling. But I think that, I I don't know, there's something about it. Like, I think people, like, you know, discovering the Umbrella Man in the Zapruder film. Like, the way that there are people that are just, like, invisible when you don't realize that they, like, play a role in the situation you're in. Yeah, and they it's become like, visible there's to you, an like, episode, retroactively. There's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where... A girl feels invisible in high school, and then she literally turns invisible and wreaks havoc. That's great and totally the same. It's phenomenal. <laughs> I love Buffy. <laughs> okay, so level four. To understand level four, I'm going to take you to the goat lab. Yay. So the goat lab exists at Fort Bragg. At the time that Ronson was investigating, it was like very recently post 9-11. I will explain why. And uh, most of it still existed at that time. And most of the soldiers didn't even know about it. But he described it as 
a rickety clapboard hospital building dating from the Second World War, situated down an unpaved track in an overgrown wooded area filled with 100 de-bleated goats. Okay. Goat Lab was originally created as a clandestine laboratory to provide in-the-field surgical training for Special Forces soldiers. Also, from here on out, trigger warning, content warning, mild or not mild, depending on what I'm talking about, animal abuse. Okay. I have done my best to – I'm not going to talk about, like, the worst of it. Um. The next part I'm about to say is a little brutal, and the rest of it, I have kept it pretty easy. Okay. I edited it for you and for our listeners. Thank you. So in the surgical training, a goat would be taken into a soundproofed bunker, shot in the leg with a bolt gun, and then the special forces soldiers who were training would rush in, anesthetize it, and perform emergency surgery, and then nurse it back to health. So Glenn is telling John Ronson about all of this, and he goes, we had a master sergeant who could stop the heart of a goat just by wanting the goat's heart to stop. And John Ronson was like, Hi, eh, who? <laughs> and he was like, uh, I think it was a guy and named... reader, <laughs> that guy was me. <laughs> he goes, I think it was a man named Michael Echenis. Or a Chanis. I don't know. John Ronson's British. And I don't know how to pronounce the last name. So this takes us to Colonel John Alexander, who is the person who introduced Stubblebine, who I've been in my writing referring to as Stubbs, (laughs) to the 1st Earth Battalion Operational Manual. His job was to headhunt gurus and, like, new age leaders to come to Project Jedi and train Special Forces soldiers. Uh, most That's of them a were, cool job. I know. It's an awesome job. Most of them were, quote, routinely greeted with boos, catcalls, and theatrical yawns, but one of them who was not greeted with that or catcalled was a man named Michael Achanis. Michael fought in Vietnam for two months in 1970. In those two months, he had 29 confirmed kills. But then parts of his foot and calf were blown off in combat, so he was shipped back to the United States to San Francisco, where he was told he would never walk again. By 1975, he had become the nation's leading expert of the Korean martial art of Hua Rong Do, and he was teaching techniques like invisibility at Fort Bragg. Cool. One of his martial arts colleagues, who was named Bob Duggan, told a publication called Black Belt Magazine that he considered Achanis to be basically psychotic he said that he was always on the verge of creating mayhem he was always thinking about death and the process of death and that this character trait had lodged itself in him around the time of the 29 confirmed kills in vietnam and the subsequent blowing off of his foot of his training with the special forces one former green beret wrote i was open-mouthed and slack-jawed 
I watched as he lay on a bed of nails while a trainee broke a cinder block on his stomach with a sledgehammer. He put steel spokes through the skin of his neck and forearms and lifted buckets of sand, then removed them with no bleeding and very little physical evidence of trauma. He had a tug of war with a dozen men who could not budge him a single inch. He even hypnotized a couple of people. Green berets were tossed around like rag dolls. The, plane he could, the pain he could inflict was surreal. He could hurt someone with a finger. Whoa. Yeah. He also worked as the martial arts editor of Soldier of Fortune magazine and made himself into the poster boy for army mercenaries. He appeared on the covers of Soldier of Fortune and Black Belt magazine frequently. Ronson described this situation as, If you ever chance upon a 1970s photograph of a handsome and wiry American mercenary with a handlebar mustache, lying vigilant and armed in the jungle terrain, wearing khakis and a bandana, and clutching a knife with a vicious serrated edge, the chances are that is Michael Achanis. (laughs) All this made him even more famous, which is not a good strategy for a mercenary, and possibly led to his mysterious death at age 28 in Nicaragua. (laughs) Oh, my God. So the, like, official story of his death is that he died in a helicopter crash. But the one that, like, circulates with all these people is that he, because he was so into new agey stuff, he was very, like, mind over body. And he used to, like, let people run him over with Jeeps to prove mind over body. But if you do that slowly, then your body doesn't take all of the weight at the same time and you're fine but the story is that the person who was driving the jeep that one time didn't know that that's how it worked and ran over him too fast and killed him because he got Mm. like insane internal damage yeah and that the helicopter story was made up to spare the people who ran him over wow but That, that sounds like that reminds me of like houdini Yes, it's very Houdini. But it turns out that Michael Achanis was not the man who dropped the goat at the goat lab at Fort Bragg. The man who dropped the goat was named Guy Savelli. Guy Savelli runs the Guy Savelli Dance and Martial Arts Studio in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. John Ronson tracked him down. So he's like the Abbey of dance moms of <laughs> martial the arts dance. in Ohio. Exactly. Got it. Also, so, wait, sorry. I should have asked this earlier, but what do you mean drop the goat? I'll tell you. Okay. So Ron, John Ronson tracked him down, confirmed that he was at the goat lab and that he was the one who dropped the goat and that he was still practicing the technique. This is something that I edited out for my brain and yours and all people who care about animals. But there's this very long story about how Guy Savelli um, stared at a hamster until it died, like, in the weeks before he met John Ronson. But it's, like, a long story, including videos and whatever, and it doesn't matter. But the hamster, he killed a hamster with his mind. Right, because if you just stare at it and you don't feed it, it dies. 
No, he had <laughs> no, he had someone coming in to feed it and give it water and like play with it every night. It, over the course, it was over the course of three days. We're not getting into it. Okay, but the point is that he dropped the goat while he was in Fort Bragg, and he was he could still do it. What does that mean? I'll tell you. You're about to understand. So, Guy Savelli got a phone call in 1983 from Colonel John Alexander. Because Michael Achanis had mysteriously died in Nicaragua in 1978, the special forces had stopped incorporating the martial arts techniques into the training. But they decided they wanted to give an, they decided they wanted to give it another go, and they asked if Guy Savelli would come take Michael's place because his style of martial arts, which was called Kun Tao, had a very mystical dimension to it. It's described as Ron Johnson says. Guy Savelli teaches his students that only with total integration of the mental, physical, and spiritual can one hope to come away unscathed. Our intention is to teach this integrated way and show others how to have exceptional paranormal results that are usually associated with fables for the young. So that's Guy Savelli's whole martial arts thing. So he agreed to go down to Fort Bragg for one week. The first day he was there, he taught the soldiers how to break slabs of concrete with their bare hands, how to withstand being hit on the back of the neck with a thick metal rod, and how to make a person forget what they're about to say. <laughs> and John Ronson That's is an like... That's an amazing party trick. I, I know. that one. John Ronson is like, how do you make a person forget what they're about to say? And he goes... You ever play pool and you miss your shot and you want your opponent to miss his shot and you go, no. <laughs> it's that, but inside your brain. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, I think I might be able to do this. I think you could. So he taught all the soldiers those things. And at the end of the first day, the people in charge of the special forces were like, so... We have goats. And Guy Savelli was like, all right, let's try it. Let's make the goats forget what they were going to say. Let's make the goats miss their pool shot. So the next morning they got a goat. Guy Savelli specifically requested that it not be de-bleated or shot in the leg. And they put the goat in a small room with nothing but a video camera. And then Guy Savelli was in... A, another room and I'm going to pull a U right now and read the passage from the book because there's no way I could describe it differently great this is how he described it to John Ronson guy knelt on the floor in another room and he began to get that feeling inside him I pictured a golden road going up into the sky he said and the Lord was there and I walked into his arms and I got a chill and I knew it was right I wanted to find a way to knock the goat down. We have this picture of St. Michael the Archangel with a sword, so I thought about that. I thought about St. Michael with his sword going through the goat and knocking it down to the ground. Inside of me, I couldn't breathe. And you believe it. You believe it. And after 15 minutes, I said, Lenny, you better go see. I don't know for sure. And Lenny from Special Forces disappeared into the room where the goat was. And he came back and announced with surprise and solemnity, the goat is down. What I mean when I say he dropped a goat is that the goat was on its side in this room. 
and it laid there for a while and then it got back up and was fine. Wow. Like he just dropped the goat. <laughs> <laughs> like he knocked it over. He just dropped it. Yeah. <laughs> also, Lenny from Special Forces is like. Oh, we love Lenny. <laughs> I just love it because everyone else is like Sergeant, Colonel, Captain, <laughs> Leopold, Archibald the Second. And they're like Lenny from Black Ops. Is Lenny from Black Ops here? Lenny, Lenny from Special Forces, and he's like, I'm, uh, it's dropped. <laughs> so Lenny, go to two. <laughs> Lenny to two. I'm on two. Is the goat dropped? Uh, yeah, the goat's dropped. All right, back, back to one. Back to one. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> the next day, they asked him to drop a goat again. But this time, they said they wanted him to kill the goat. And he did not like that, but he, I think he did it. I'm not sure. Most of the accounts are like just him talking about how he hated that they asked him to kill the goat. I do not know if he did it or not. But day three, they did a whole new experiment. Guy asked them to round up 30 goats. They put numbers on each of the goats and then put them in the the other room and they randomly chose number 16, and Guy began trying to drop goat number 16. Not kill it, but just drop it. But he says that every time he went into his meditation with the picture of the archangel, he kept getting pulled out of it by the memory of being told to kill the goat. And he says, I was just so pissed off. He says PO'd in the documentary, but in the book, (laughs) John Ronson changed it to pissed (laughs) off. And he says, anyway, when Lenny went next door to look, it turned out that number 17 had dropped dead. And John Ronson goes, collateral damage. And (laughs) Guy just, like, nods solemnly. Oh, that's so sad. I know. And that was the end of his training with Project Jedi's Goat Lab. He left because they asked him to kill. So they asked him to kill a goat. And then he either did or didn't. Yeah. And then they were like, can you knock this other goat down? And he accidentally killed a different goat. Yes. But he killed the goat. He They asked him to knock down 16 and he accidentally killed 17. The other one. Yeah. The wrong, yeah. The wrong goat. Yes. So then, so he left Goat Lab. He was like, I'm not going to be a part of this. Post 9-11... Special Forces secretly sent three soldiers to Ohio to a veterinary clinic near Guy's house and asked him to come drop a goat for them. And he was like, I'm not going to do it, but I'll teach you what I know. In the documentary, he then shows John Ronson a video in which it's like him sitting in this veterinary lab with a goat hooked up to an EKG. And the goat's heart rate goes from 60 to 50. And John Ronson is like, that's not that impressive. And he's like, dude, that's level one. Like, the fact that we got from 60 to 50 is insane. And that's only level one. Level two drops the goat, which you learned about. And then level three kills it. And John Ronson's like, okay, but like 60 to 50 is not impressive. And Guy goes, yeah, but level one is high. And it's like, yeah. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. If you could drop a heart rate from 60 to 50 with your mind, that's a big deal. Yeah. So then 
as he's investigating, Ronson finds out that Jim Channon has been brought out of retirement after 9-11 by the Army's chief of staff at the time named General Shoemaker because Donald Rumsfeld has been asking for creative input on the war on terror and Jim Channon was one of the names that he asked for. So John Ronson goes to him and is like, what, like, what the fuck is going on? And he wouldn't say what the input he gave was, but he did say, listen, I'm still the commander of the 1st Earth Battalion, and I'm still sought for my opinion. And John asks, how many soldiers do you have under your command? And Jim goes, how many minds have read the manual? And it's like, what a fucking power move. So then, in the summer of 2004, Guy Savelli called John Ronson and told him that the special forces had asked him to travel secretly back to Fort Bragg with an animal. Uh, John asked what animal it was, and Guy wouldn't say, but he said that it was small and cheap, so John just like assumed it was a hamster because of the hamster story. Mm-hmm. Guy told John Ronson that the animal staring program is back. And he said it was because of the torture happening at Guantanamo Bay by the soldiers who were trained at Fort Bragg. And the Fort Bragg commanders were so horrified that they brought Guy in to teach soldiers a new way of interrogating people because they wanted to find a peaceful way to get a detainee to talk, like just by staring at them. Because it was like a gentle way to do it without fucking being a monster, basically. Right. And the whole story is like very iffy because I'm very anti-military to begin with. But Jim Channon describes this basically as, quote, the story of the creativity of an institution that you would expect to be the last one to open its mind to greater realities. I... And this is where I stop because the second half of the Men Who Stare at Goat story is how the government is maybe using these techniques and these ideas to be horrifying. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I want to explore. So, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know. There's a lot of evidence that they are using this, and I'm not going to go into it because it's disgusting and upsetting but the fun part of the story is how did we get from Jim Channon in Vietnam to Stubbs yeah (laughs) thinking that we should bend spoons and carry lambs into the military I love it so that's the supposed story of the men who stare at goats that's amazing there's a lot I recommend if you are interested in this reading the book and also watching the documentary series because it's only the first episode that is like the history of it and the rest is like the disturbing stuff that I couldn't bring myself to learn but it's like phenomenal and the movie's phenomenal and it's all crazy and campy and wonderful until it becomes horrifying and torture I have a question which is but it sounds like in all those experiments they weren't actually staring at goats they were like in the other room (laughs) yeah so, um, how come it's called The Men Who Stare at Goats? Because I think, from what I remember, it was like, 
what they wanted to do was to be able to combine all of these ideas, like the idea of like stopping someone from remembering what they were about to say with your mind and like thinking about goat's heart stopping and then eventually turn it into being able to just stare at a person and stop their heart or make them do what you want. Yeah. God, that's so interesting. I know it's bananas. It's nuts. Yeah. And it's really upsetting and awful, but <laughs> that's, I guess, part of our United States history. Well, and present. Ugh. Yeah, we have our no idea how they're using it now. military a nightmare. Because he stopped investigating this in fucking 2004, so we don't even know what's going on with these psyops. <laughs> We don't know what's going on with anything. We don't even really know what's going on with coronavirus. No. Yeah, we don't know anything. Not you and I personally. I mean, just they don't tell us. We also don't know anything, anything personally. <laughs> That's true, too. We literally don't know. And we stay in our lane, don't we? We do. Aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the men who stare at goats. But that's the men who stare at goats. Thanks. I love that story. Up until the horrifying part that I don't know about. Yeah. That's why I didn't tell you about it. Thanks. Because <laughs> it's horrifying. Hooray. But it was used as a replacement for Guantanamo, which doesn't mean much. Mm, no. Mm-mm. That's did the... we do it? I think we did it. Good for us. Good for her. Go for her. <laughs> Yay. Good mysteries, everyone. I'm so glad that was purged out of my brain. What is this, episode 43? I don't know. What day is it? How old am I? What's my name? <laughs> Tuesday, <laughs> 28. No, you're about to be 28. No, yeah. Your yeah. birthday is in like two months. I know we're still going to be on lockdown for it. Yeah. Which is funny because last year on my birthday, I put myself into (laughs) voluntary lockdown and I stayed home all day. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. For those who don't know, well, I mean, by the time this comes out, it'll be old news. But today they announced that L.A. will, with all certainty, be locked down for another three months. So guess that means more mystery content for you. (laughs) Yay. I love to be under a stare. I'm so excited for our 50th episode. <laughs> well, Shall we attempt our sign-offs? Yeah. Thank you for listening. We love all of our gumshoes. Yeah. And uh, follow us on all the stuff, mostly just on Instagram, Mystery Team Inc. We do have a Facebook page that just updates from our Instagram and we do have a Twitter that we don't use. <laughs> you can also check out our website, mysteryteaminc.com, or send an email to us at mysteryteamincorporated at gmail.com. I think that's we everything. Love, we love emails. Yeah, and we love DMs. And we, we love, love DMs. talking to our friends. So hit us up. Yeah. Please. Please. <laughs> Please. So fuckle the buck up. Uh, we don't know it's real. Stay in your lane. Oh, are we doing the normal ones? 
I think so. Yeah, we went back okay. to them, didn't we? Start over. Start over. <laughs> I was doing the quarantine ones. It's like customary now that we do this like at least two or three times. <laughs> <laughs> we used to be one take wonders. I know. Now we're three take disappointments. Uh, it's more content, which is all anyone really wants, isn't it? You're right. That's right. Okay, <laughs> I'm ready. Let's do it. Fuck the buck up. We don't know. Stay in your lane. Smooches. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.